We sketch monsters on the map because we find their presence comforting. They guard the edges of the abyss and force us to look away so we can live comfortably in the known world, at least for a little while. But if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on earth, perhaps the only honest answer would be, I don't know. I passed through it once, but I've never really been there. What do you want? Because if you don't know what you want, you'll never know what you need. What do you want? Did you know that you were created by God to have holy desires, holy wants? What do you want? God created you to live a life of purpose. The purpose of creating and sustaining life. What do you want? If you can afford it, you probably haven't found it. What do you want? So about two years ago, at this very time, Brenda and I went to see a movie at an actual movie theater. When you've got four kids, that doesn't happen very often. In fact, uh, two years ago is the last time that we've actually been to a movie theater together without kids. And we went and we saw this movie. It's called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Now, in uh, the movie, uh, Ben Stiller actually plays the role of Walter Mitty. Kristen Wiig is also in it. Now, it's a retelling of a short story that was written by James Thurber back in 1939. Now, in the short story, Walter Mitty is a man who basically is sleepwalking through life. He's just kind of adult of a man, never really living. And in fact, the only place that he ever actually lives is in his daydreams. In fact, in the short story, it actually starts off with he and his wife driving their car into town to go to the store. And as he's driving, all of a sudden, he's no longer in the car with his wife. Now he's actually the captain of a Navy hovercraft at wartime. And he's speeding along, and he's got to watch out for the mines that are in the water. And he takes a sharp left. Captain, look out! Gunfire is blazing here and there. And just as he's about to rescue the entire crew and be the hero, his wife snaps him back to reality. Walter! Where are you? You're speeding. You know I don't like to go over 40 miles an hour. You're doing 55. That's kind of Walter's life. He's always living in his daydreams, but not actually living real life. And in the movie, they actually take, uh, of course, some liberties. It was just a short story that Thurber wrote back in 39. But the same thing is true of Ben Stiller's character of Walter Mitty. And that actually is what draws the movie to its climax. April Mosley is a film critic, and, and she wrote that. Uh, she wrote this about the movie. She says this, Walter Mitty is you and me. He is any man who has ever self-medicated his ego by imagining better outcomes. He is the ubiquitous everyman that believes that his station in life is static, who cannot put down the iPhone or turn off the TV. Now check it. He is every one of us that has become a passive passenger in our own distracted lives. He is every one of us who has become a passive passenger in our own distracted lives. 
In the movie, Walter Mitty has to make a decision. Will he be a victim of his fears, or will he actually learn to live? That, I think, is the exact same question that God has for you and I today. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, before we can dive into our text, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 19, and we're going to be focusing on verses 17, 18, and 19 this morning. But you have to kind of understand why Paul had written this letter. Paul uh, had written this letter to Timothy. Timothy was his protege. In fact, Paul calls him his son in the faith. Paul had actually planted the church in Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys. Timothy has been sent to that church where Timothy is currently pastoring that church. Now, Ephesus was a big city, a lot of notoriety, and the church there had begun to uh, really grow. Uh, And as a result, uh, the church had gained a a lot of influence within the city, and uh, that meant that there were a lot of surly characters that began to kind of infiltrate the church, false teachers, who saw the church as a way to get famous or a way to get wealthy. And so these false teachers were kind of infiltrating the church, and Paul loved the church. Paul wanted to see the church be protected, and so he had sent Timothy there, his protege, to pastor and take care of, teach. So Paul is writing this letter. He's at the end of his life. He knows that his time on earth is not too long left, and so he wants to make sure that uh, that which he has entrusted to Timothy, uh, that Timothy would continue on in the faith and be strengthened and help bring the church to maturity there. And so he writes this letter. In fact, this is the final charge that he gives to Timothy. He's just been talking about these false teachers who are in it for the money, in it to try to look good, in it for the notoriety that they're going to gain. And and, and he says to watch out for them and weed them out, stay away from them. And this is what we find in now verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, But you, man of God, flee from all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. That's like two months of sermons, and I just did it in five seconds. You're welcome. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession. Now that that word, take hold, in our English translation, it's actually two words, take hold. Uh, In the original language, it's just one word. It's actually written in what's called the perfect tense. You have past, present, future tense, and perfect tense, or also aorist tense, it's sometimes called, just has this idea of an ongoing action. It's something that, Paul, uh, that Timothy is supposed to continue to do, continue taking hold. Now you're like, why does it say take hold of the eternal life to which you were called? Does that mean that Timothy wasn't yet a Christian? Had Timothy somehow lost his salvation and somehow needed to grab it again? Or, uh, the point that Paul is making it has nothing to do with his salvation. Uh, Timothy's a Christian, a solid believer. He's been a Christian for a long time. What Paul is saying is that when you're a Christian... You're supposed to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That means continually grabbing hold of that which has been promised to you. We're going to actually get back to this word because Paul's going to repeat it again a little bit further down. And I think this is one of the keys to this entire passage. And I think it's actually one of the keys to what it means to live the Christian life. Let's continue on. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, verse 13, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you, Timothy, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Advent season. 
where we look forward to Christ's return, his fresh inbreaking into our world, into our lives during this time, a season of waiting. And that's exactly what Paul charges Timothy with. He's saying, grab hold of that eternal life. Keep grabbing hold of it until Christ returns. Verse 15, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. You ever have a time where you're talking about something and you just get like carried away? A Michigan State fan would probably feel that right about now, you know what I'm saying? That's how Paul feels about God. I can just envision, he just wanted to kind of end this little portion and he just says, you know, God, the blessed and only ruler, well, and he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords, and he's alone immortal, and he lives in unapproachable light, and no one has seen or can see to him be honor and might. It's good stuff, people. We ain't going to spend a lot of time on it. I'm just telling you it's good stuff. Now, looks like Paul is about to take a complete right turn. Like, where is this coming from, Paul? Because we get to verse 17, and he says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may, what? Take hold of the life that is truly life. Now I got to verse 17, and I read these words, command those who are rich in this present world. And everybody in here was thinking to himself, oh, it's about time somebody talked to them rich folks. Right? Because you're thinking in your mind, yeah, that, that dude over there, he's rich. She probably needs to hear this. Or that lady over there, she's rich. She needs to hear this, right? And you're thinking about yourself, though, but I'm just normal. Right? Right? Well, well, let's think for a moment that Paul maybe had not just the wealthy in Ephesus in mind, but maybe you and I as well. And you're like, hold up, T, but I'm just not, like, I'm not rich. Compared to who? If you own one car, that actually places you in the 90th percentile wealthiest people in the world. If you own two cars in your family, that places you in the 95th percentile richest people in the world. According to the World Bank, 2015, if your family earned $10,000, that makes you richer than 84% of the rest of the world. And check this out. If your family made $32,000 last year, that puts you in the 99th percentile richest people in the world. For the sake of a guest teacher this morning, would you simply humor me and assume that we are all rich? And that what Paul had to say to the folks there in Ephesus, he might also have to say to us as well. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Now, not, I don't think, for the most part, any of us are like 
outwardly arrogant, right? Because arrogance basically means that we think that we're better somehow because we have more stuff. I don't think anybody's probably going to say that out loud. Uh, here's the problem, though. I think way too often we, we, we think it. We might not say it because we know that that's not kosher, but we kind of think it. Well, I, I work harder than that person. That's why I got what I got. It's because of everything. It's, it's, the, it's the work ethic that my parents instilled in me. It, it, it's what I've done. That's kind of, And we start to think maybe we're a little bit better, right? Now, most of us probably wouldn't even think that, right? You're like, I don't know, man, I don't think that way. The problem is that I think it's often subconscious. Well, it must be because of something that I've done, or uh, I must be worth whatever it happens to be. In fact, if you don't think that you're arrogant, and trust me, God's been dealing with me in this in a lot of ways, uh, ask yourself the question why you get bent out of shape when you're not the first one to the red light. <laughs> Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. And then he goes on to say, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And if you bought a house in 2007, you understand what that verse is all about. If you thought you were going to retire in 2009, you understand what that verse is all about, right? Wealth is uncertain. Now, so often we think, yeah, but we know how the stock market's going to work. Even when there's a, a, a little bit of a backslide, we know it's going to build back up, and so that's why we keep putting money into it, and da-da-da-da, and okay, that's human wisdom, it's true, but at the end of the day, something catastrophic could happen, and everything could get wiped out. God's Word reminds us that Wealth is not certain. We often think it is, and so that's why we often kind of put our hope there. Like, well, you know what? It's all right. I've got my nest egg. I'm going to be cool. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. So there's a couple things we're not supposed to do, okay? There's some don'ts, but there's also some do's. He goes on and he says, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, I think this is important to actually pay attention to this verse as well. Who is the one that gives you everything that you have? God, right? And it says that he richly provides us with everything, right? If God's got everything, okay, God has unlimited funds, God richly provides us with everything. Now, why does he do that? What does it say? Look at the text right there. What does it say? For what? Yes. Say it again. For enjoyment. Yeah. Look, if you've been given much, you ought to enjoy the heck out of it. If you've got a 57 Chevy, you ought to get in that bad boy and drive it around town and love it. If you got a cottage out at the lake, enjoy the heck out of your cottage. It's okay to enjoy what you have. God has given it to you for your enjoyment. Now, if you stole it, okay, then it's a different sermon, a different time. But everything that you have, God has given it to you for your enjoyment. However, you knew there was a butt coming, didn't you? However, it's not just for our enjoyment. We continue to read. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Whatever God has given to us, it's for our enjoyment, but it's not just for our enjoyment. It's so that we can do good, so that we can be rich in good deeds, so that we can be generous. Generous isn't just giving from your extra. Generous and willing to share. There's that college kid that you've been seeing around church from South America. He's here on a scholarship, but he, he doesn't have a whole lot of money, and he needs some extra money, but he can't get a job because he doesn't have a car. 
but you've got a 57 Chevy that's going to be sitting in the garage all winter long. How generous are you? How willing to share are you? Like it just got real, didn't it? Do you know how much salt there are on the roads? He's in college. Whatever you've been given, you've been given it so that you can be generous and willing to share. We don't own it. We're stewards of what we have for God. But here's the thing. Paul's talking specifically about material riches, but there's a lot more that this applies to, right? As Americans, we're not just some of the richest materially in the world. We're also rich in a number of other ways. We have some of the greatest health care in the entire world. That means that you're going to have a riches in years. A lot of folks think, well, I'm working really hard and I'm doing all these things, but you know what? When retirement comes, like, that's kind of my time. God's saying, no, 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 no. I have given you what you have so that you can enjoy it, but also so that you can be rich in good deeds, generous with those years, willing to share. For some of you, it's the amount of spare time that you have right now in life because of all of the technological advances. We've got all kinds of ways that we've got time. That's another way that we are incredibly wealthy. We have to do good with the time that we've been given, generous, willing to share. He's talking about finances, but I believe that the application goes well beyond that, and I think that it's incredibly important that we all recognize that this morning. Now, he goes on, and this to me is three of the most important words in this passage. In this way. In this way. He says, look, if you don't the don'ts and you do the do's, right? Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. But do be good. Do be rich in good deeds. Do be generous. Do be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. What we do now matters for eternity. What we do now matters for eternity. Have you ever wished that you could do something differently in the past based on something that you know now? Right? Like you probably wouldn't have bought that house in 07. You probably wouldn't have taken out all those loans to get that degree that you haven't used in 20 years, right? You probably would have put a little bit more attention into that relationship. You, you probably would have fill in the blank. I don't have lots of regrets in my life, but this is one. When I was in high school, I started playing soccer, and I wasn't very good when I first began, but by the time my senior year rolled around, I was doing pretty well, and I wasn't good enough to get recruited by a college to go play anywhere, but I was still hoping that I might be able to make a a team. I really wanted to play collegiate athletics. That was just kind of a goal, a dream that I had. Freshman year, I went to a small community college in Flint called Jordan College. Uh, They didn't have a soccer program, so I didn't play freshman year. Sophomore year, I transferred to a school down in Ohio called Cedarville. Cedarville, uh, now it's Cedarville University, and uh, when I showed up uh, sophomore year, uh, you didn't just try out for the varsity team, like you had to be invited to play varsity soccer. So uh, the only thing I could try out for was the JV team, I tried out for it, I made it, I actually had a really good year my sophomore year. Junior year came, and uh, coach, well at the end of my sophomore year, coach came up to me, uh, Coach McGilvery was the varsity coach, and he said, hey Torn, uh, you had a great season this past year, I'd really love you to come play varsity with us next year. I was like, Yes! I was pretty pumped. One of my dreams is becoming reality. So he says, though, hey, uh, you're going to come back to school. And uh, he told everybody on the team, when he called us all together, he's like, you've got to be in shape because we only have a week and a half before games actually start. Games actually started before school actually started. 
So he told us all what it was going to require. And the, the main thing that he was going to know whether we had stayed in shape all summer was whether we could run two miles in 12 minutes. Okay? So uh, this body is not built to run long distances in short amounts of time. All right? Uh, so uh, I, I knew I was probably going to have to do a little bit of work, like put in some miles or whatever. Uh, the problem was is that most of my life I had kind of gotten by on just natural ability. So I just kind of thought to myself, you know what? Come late summer, I'm going to show up for camp, and uh, I'm just going to bust out, you know, two miles in 12 minutes. I'm just going to run really hard, and uh, I'll kill it. You know, I'll kill myself doing it, but I'll, but I'll make it, and it'll be good. And so that summer, uh, I went jogging two times. And I showed up the first day at camp, and coach pulled us all together, put us on the track, and he said, all right, boys, two miles, 12 minutes, go. So we took off running. First lap, I'm hanging with the lead pack, doing all right. Second lap, lead pack starting to get a little bit of space on me. Third lap, there's definitely a gap now between me and the lead pack. By the fourth lap at the one-mile mark, I'm at five minutes and 55 seconds. I basically have to run the next four laps as fast or faster than I just ran the first four laps. Needless to say, it didn't happen. In fact, the closest I ever came, because he gave us two or three opportunities to try, was 12 minutes and 25 seconds. And coach knew that I had not prepared myself to play on this team, and I wound up sitting the bench the entire year. I was good enough to have contributed. I probably wouldn't have started, but I was good enough to have contributed to the team, but because I didn't come prepared. And I so wish now that someone would have come to my punk college sophomore self and said, dude, you have got to put in miles this summer. Because if you put in miles, you're going to actually run two miles in under 12 minutes, and you're going to participate on the team, and you're going to travel when come playoff time happens, and you're going to play again your senior year. None of those happened. If somebody would have said, look, Torn, if you do this, you're going to get this. If you do this, though, this is what's going to happen. I wish somebody would have told me that. I think that my role as a pastor, as a teacher of God's word, is to say that to you. If you'll trust what God's word says, if you'll do this, you get this. But if you don't, if you do this, this is what happens. This is precisely what Paul is saying to us. He says, in this way. Look, if you're willing to give something now, you will gain something in eternity. And you're like, T, that's cool. Like, I get it. But here's the deal. Uh, I'm young. And I understand that, like, someday I'll get rewarded, but I'm guessing heaven's going to be pretty cool anyway. So, you know, how much do I really need to do now? It's probably going to be off the chain, so big whoop. And I got a lot of years to live, so if I give a lot of stuff away right now, then you know what? I'm going to have a long time to just be kind of sitting here, not enjoying life until I die and get to heaven. And Philip Towner is a New Testament scholar, and he has this to say. Now, I'm going to read you a quote from a commentary, and it's deep stuff, okay? But hang with me to the very end. Do not pull back. This is one of those times like, oh my goodness, this is so deep. I'm just going to kind of check out. No, do not do that. Push in right now because when I get to the bottom of it, it's going to make a lot of sense. And I think it's one of the most important things that this text has to teach us. Dr. Towner says this. He's talking about taking hold of the life that is truly life. Remember, Paul says it in verse 12 and then repeats it again in verse 19. 
He says the previous phrase, eternal life, referring to verse 12, is described here in verse 19 as true or real life. This distinction continues the reversal of values by the paradoxical assertion that sharing wealth now is in reality an acquisition of heavenly wealth. Eternal life is meant, but in the way it is expressed, the life that is truly life, and by the repetition of the verb of verse 12, which echoes that command to take hold of, check it, this is the money statement, the real possibility of beginning the experience of eternal life in the present age is confirmed. What he's saying is that if you're willing to give your life away now, do good, be generous, willing to share, give away whatever you have, you're actually going to grab life over here. You give wealth, you get wealth. But here's the thing, it doesn't just stay over here. It's not like you just got this big chasm that now you have to wait until you somehow die and then wind up experiencing the great life you're supposed to live. No, no, no. You give it here, you gain it here, but when you gain it here, you actually drag it into the present. That's the crazy thing about God's kingdom. You think you're giving it away, that you're losing something, but actually you're gaining something, and not just for the future, it's for the now. You actually take heaven and you bring it to earth. We're supposed to be people who take heaven and bring it to earth so that everybody else gets to see what heaven's like. They get to watch you and they say, whoa, whoa, he gave a bunch of stuff away, but he's actually really living. (laughs) Did you know that we're all supposed to tell great stories? Every single one of us. And the same thing that makes a great life also makes a great story. Every penny we spend is another chapter in our story. Every good deed, every generous gift, another section in our story. And our stories matter. Friend, your life matters. You know why? Because you actually are the only one that's going to be able to show the people around you what heaven looks like. The same thing that makes a great life makes a great story. There's three things. Every great book you've ever read, every great movie you've ever seen, they all have these three things in it. You ready? Number one is a character. Number two, that wants something. And number three, that overcomes conflict to get it. Every single story, Star Wars. Ooh, I can't wait for the new one to come out. I already got my ticket, all right? Uh, One of the things that was beautiful about that, they all have this in common. A character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. In your life, you are the character. Like it or not, it's your story. You're the character, all right? So the question is, what do you want? What do you want? We have to start by wanting something. So uh, I've been working on this movie script that that I'm hoping uh, that I might be able to uh, sell to to a large studio that they might take it and and, and run with it. But but I want to give you guys just kind of a, a little peek into it, okay? So... Uh, Picture this. It's a a, a suburbanite Pittsburgh woman. She's in New York City for a conference. Uh, It's a little break in the conference, and she's walking down Fifth Avenue, and that's how the movie begins. The camera pans up onto this woman as she's walking, and she's just kind of looking around at all the just wonderful, beautiful shops. And and, and she sees something out of the corner of her eye, catches her eye. It's this little cute boutique, and she walks into it, and the designer of these clothes, it's as if she's been designing these clothes exactly for this woman. Every single piece just fits her perfectly, as though she was the model that she was using to create these clothes. Everything just fits her just right. It's exactly what she wants, and she says, I have to have these clothes. These clothes will make me. 
So the rest of the conference, all she can think about is how is she going to get these clothes. They're way too expensive for her to afford right now, but she goes back home and she tells her kids about these clothes and says, guys, I, I really need you to, to help me out here. And so she says um, to her son, uh, you're not going to be able to take karate lessons anymore. And to her daughter, uh, no more piano lessons for you because mommy needs to save some money. And she tells a neighborhood kid who normally mows her lawn, uh, hey, I'm not going to be able to pay you anymore. Uh, I'm just going to kind of do it whenever I get around to it. And she kind of becomes known around town as a stingy lady, right? She, she stops tipping when she goes out for dinner. In fact, she realizes she's not amassing enough money quick enough, so she actually takes their house that they live in, and, and she sells it. It's in a nice part of town, a, a big house, and, and she winds up buying a really small house in, in a rough part of town, and, and, her, and her son and daughter actually have to share a room now, and there's a room for her, but she actually does take some of the money from the sale of the house, and she actually uses it to build an addition. Now, the addition is just on her bedroom, though. It's a huge walk-in closet. And at the end of the movie, she walks into this boutique and she lays down a check and men come in and they take all the clothes off the racks. And as the credits are about to roll, you see her open up the closet to her walk-in closet. Lights come on and it's just filled with the clothes. And everybody's like, yeah! You're not cheering. Why aren't you cheering? I mean, it's got everything that I said a great story has to have, right? A character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. So why aren't you cheering? Because what she wants is stupid. That's why. You'd be ticked off if you paid 10 bucks to go see that movie. It's a dumb movie. Because what she wants is stupid, and you could put a guy in for this too. He, he sees a BMW ad on TV and starts working long hours and sacrificing his family and his relationships so he can walk into a dealership and give him the keys and he drives off into the sunset. <sighs> no, it's stupid. And yet all too often I find myself living that story. Friends, what do you want? We have to want something worth wanting. God has placed in every single one of us a holy desire, a holy want. And if you don't know what it is, then stop listening to me and take whatever time is left and simply sit before God and say, God, what is my holy desire? What am I living for? God, what do you want from me? Every great story has a character that wants something. The best things to want is saving the life of someone else. Those always make the best stories. So, you have to ask yourself, what is it that I want? Do I want to save orphans from being exploited or abused? Is that what you want? Do you want to help widows or single mothers know that they matter to God and that they're not alone? Do you want to give men and women who are coming out of jail a second chance? Do you want to help high school kids learn how to listen to the voice of God? What do you want? The second thing that you have to do to move a story along and I get all this from Donald Miller. Donald Miller uh, has actually written a book about it. There's actually a, uh, but it's okay. Uh, he stole it from somebody else, so I'm just stealing it from him. But uh, these are some of his concepts. And he says this, anytime that you're at a, a movie, if you have a character that wants something, uh, the way to get the character to actually begin to move on is they have to envision the climactic scene. So he tells a story back in 2011. He actually wrote a blog about this. Uh, he had lost a bunch of weight, but he needed to lose about 15 more pounds. And so he realized, though, that simply coming up with a New Year's resolution or some goals in the new year was not going to work. He says, I'm going to write myself into a story. And he said, I had to envision the climactic scene. So this for Donald is what he decided. He and his friend were going to climb Mount Hood, one of the largest mountains in the Northwest. And so he says, this was my climactic scene. It was me and my buddy, and we had been on the mountain for four days. It's early in the morning, just as before the sun's even up. 
And he says, and, and we fold up our tents and we begin the final ascent. And as we get above the cloud line, we make it to the summit, clouds at our feet, and the sun is rising and we stand there together and we take our picture. That for him was his climactic scene. Now that's great and all, and losing 15 pounds is a, a noble thing, but uh, at the end of the day, like that's not the same as saving someone's life. So what is it that you want and what is that climactic scene going to look like? Maybe for you, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to wake up in the morning. You're still disoriented after a couple of days of travel. You're jet lagged. You walk out of your hotel. You get in the cab and you don't recognize any of the music, any of the language that's being spoken around you. And you get out of the cab and you begin walking towards that Soviet era concrete building. And that big metal door opens with a creak and you walk inside and begin walking down that hallway, the clickety-clack, the clickety-clack, the clickety-clack of your feet on the concrete floor, the musty air, and there she is, the beautiful old woman that has given her life to loving these little kids. And you take the paperwork that you've been working on for over a year and you set it down. It's all filled out and ready to go. And then you turn to your left and standing there, it's that beautiful little black-haired, brown-eyed girl. And she looks up at you with some fear in her eyes. She's not real sure exactly what's going on, but you pick her up and you hold her close and you whisper in her ear, Honey, you are mine. I love you and I will never let you go. What's your climactic scene going to be? Uh, maybe for you it's a neighbor and she's the surly neighbor in your neighborhood, right? Nobody seems to get along with her. It looks like she's always got a scowl on her face. She always seems to be complaining about something. She never wants to participate, but you have decided you're going to love her with a ferocity that she could never see coming. And so all winter long, you're shoveling her driveway. You're baking her banana bread. You're bringing it over. You're sending her little encouragement notes. And slowly but surely, things begin to crack for her. You invite her over for Christmas dinner and she hangs out and you begin to share your faith and how Jesus has changed your life and day by day she starts to warm up to Jesus and your climactic scene is actually standing right up there and she's actually telling the entire church how this crazy neighbor that she had that wouldn't shut up and wouldn't stop loving her and just kept coming over and being kind and how she never had hope before but she saw something in this person and now she has finally given her life to Jesus and she's experienced life and hope like she's never had before and she can't wait to tell everybody and the pastor says I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit buried with them in his death, raised with them to new life and she's got tears streaming down her face and you've got tears streaming down your face and the whole place is like ah! what's your climactic scene? what do you want? and what's it going to look like when you get it? now up until this point all we've been talking about is Walter Mitty. It's all daydreams. It's all stuff up here. So how do we actually begin to make it reality? How do we get what we want, knowing what it's going to look like when we get it? How do we actually begin the process of moving it along? This, I think, is the most important piece of how to live a great life, how we take hold of the life that is truly life, dragging heaven into the present. We do this. We create an inciting incident. Create an inciting incident. What's your inciting incident going to look like? My wife had been talking about running a marathon for years and years. And I was always like, baby, that's awesome. You should do it. She's like, I'm going to do it this year. And then the year would go on. And next year she'd talk about it. And 
Seven years ago, she finally said, Torn, I'm going to run a marathon. I was like, baby, that's great. Thinking the same thing's going to happen, right? But my wife went online. This was the difference maker. She filled out all the paperwork online, and then she paid the money. You see, I'm the spender in our family, but my wife, she's like Charlton Heston with a gun, right? Money is out of, coming out of her cold, dead hands, you know what I'm saying? So she's the most Dutch Filipino woman you're ever going to meet. And <laughs> once she paid the money, like, it was done. Like, she was doing it. And then she went online, and she emailed all of her friends and said, I'm running a marathon. I'm really going to need your encouragement as I train. That was her inciting incident. She can't move back from that now. She has set down the gauntlet, taken the step forward. Here's what we know. The bigger the thing you want, the more conflict you're going to experience. In fact, quite honestly, Satan is going to fight you tooth and nail because he doesn't want you to accomplish the holy want that God has placed in your life. The bigger the thing you want, the more conflict you're going to have to overcome. And the more conflict you're going to have to overcome, the bigger your inciting incident had better be. There's a couple that actually goes to this church that Brenda and I have known for a number of years. It was a few years back now that they decided God was calling them to adopt. And so they wound up telling all their friends that they were going to adopt. And then they even started accepting donations. People began giving them things that they could sell at a garage sale and people just giving them donations. The process wound up taking almost three full years. During that three years, I'm sure there was numerous times where they thought to themselves, you know what? Our family's big enough. You know what? We're busy enough. You know what? We're doing all kinds of other good things and how we're serving, et cetera, et cetera. But because they had made that inciting incident, told everybody and started accepting donations, they couldn't back out now. Even when it got tough, even when they didn't want to keep going on. And after about three years, God finally opened up the door and they flew overseas, got their son and brought him back. They changed the life rescued the life of an orphan. What is your inciting incident going to be? Maybe for you on Tuesday, this is what you're going to do. You want to be a light to your coworkers at work, and so you're going to send out an email, and you're going to say to them, hey, guys, would you meet me at my cubicle at 10 o'clock? I've got coffee and donuts, and because you said donuts, all seven of your coworkers are going to be there. <laughs> and they're going to start eating your donuts, and this is what you're going to say to them. You're going to say, hey, guys, some of you might know this, some of you might not, um, but Jesus Christ has really changed my life. And I don't know that I've always been great at showing you that. I haven't always been for you. And from now on, I want you to know that I'm going to do whatever I can to make you successful. Some of you have butterflies just thinking about doing something like that, don't you? Like, oh my goodness, that would be crazy, right? Because why? That's an inciting incident. You can't move back from that now. You can't back up. When that raunchy email comes through that you want to forward on to all your coworkers, you're going to think twice about it, aren't you? When, when things get tense around the office... You're not going to throw your coworker under the bus. Instead, you're going to forgive them. You're going to offer them grace, even when it costs you something. Why? Because of the inciting incident. You can't go back. What's your inciting incident going to be? Maybe this afternoon you need to go home and you need to actually buy a plane ticket to the country where you've been sponsoring that compassion kid. Maybe you need to make a call to Bethany Christian Services this afternoon. I don't know what your inciting incident is going to be, but for the story to move forward, you have to have one. Every great story has a character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. What great story has God called you to? How are you going to be generous and willing to share your life so that you can take hold of the life that is truly life? God reminds us, don't put our hope in treasure or be arrogant because of what we have. Put your hope in God. Use your treasure to do good, to be generous and willing to share. 
Because when we do that, we begin to live the future life in the present. I want you to take 20 seconds and simply hold out your hands and just sit before God in silence and say, God, what do you want me to want? And just sit and listen if God wants to place something in your hands. We no longer sketch monsters on the map. We erase them because we find their presence unintimidating. It is not monsters, but God who guards the edges of the abyss, and he gently calls us out from the comfort of the known world, at least for a little while. So if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on earth, perhaps your honest answer could be, good, but not safe. And it continues on in so many others, because I took hold of the life that is truly life. Jesus, help us to live in such a way that we drag the future of heaven into the present so that everyone around us gets to see how real and beautiful and amazing you are. Help us to experience life and life to the full, that very thing that you came to give us, and help us to do it by giving away what you have so generously given to us It's when we do that that, God, we will actually experience heaven now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.